Hello, everyone, and welcome to APQC Podcasts. If you like what you hear, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC Podcasts on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lauren Trees, and today I'm talking to Leland Holmquest. And Leland, you started in the IT space, both academically and career-wise, and you were actually working on a, a doctorate in software engineering. And then you realized that technology and technology adoption was all about people and ended up refocusing both in terms of, of your career, moving into knowledge management and change management, and for your doctorate, moving into a doctorate of business administration, specializing in industrial organizational psychology. And you're currently the adoption and change management lead for Microsoft Services, which I suspect uses all of your knowledge and experience, both on the people side and the technology side. And I know that you've done a lot of interesting research that you feel like is relevant to the knowledge management space and also obviously had some experience putting that into practice. So I thought it would be fun to have a conversation about all of that and how it comes together. So I'm, uh, I'm hoping that you can start by just telling me a little bit more about how your research and work crossed paths and, and what came out of that intersection. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks, Lauren, for having me. Um, so I was working at the Naval Surface Warfare Center Dahlgren at the time, and we had implemented a knowledge management system. And one of the things that hit me going through that journey was that when you look at a lot of the research that exists on knowledge management, it was focused primarily on, you know, what, what wasn't working. And most of the time that looked at tools and technology, right? And a lot of the, a lot of the material that's out there is really focused on that. We hear it all the time. There's some new tool and, you know, this is how it's going to solve the, the problems and stuff. But what's really missing is the whole people focus. And in the end, I think we sometimes lose sight of that. We get wrapped up into the tools and the coolness of the technology, which I'm a big fan of, don't get me wrong. Um, but we forget that the real heart of knowledge management is people because it's people that, you know, create knowledge, that, that maintain the knowledge, that share the knowledge, and that actually use the knowledge. And so I realized I, I, I wanted to learn more about that side and, you know, what is missing? What can we do? to uh, make our CAM projects and initiatives more impactful, more successful. No, that's great. I, I feel like we're always fighting that battle. The technology is so alluring to people, especially yeah. to executives. And there's always a new technology that people think is going to solve the adoption problem. And then you put it in place and it doesn't, but we don't seem to always learn from, from that cycle. Yeah. So for my dissertation, what I wanted to do was uh, I wanted to research and find psychology-based theories that we could put into practice and really test and see what, what can we do from a knowledge management perspective to do improvements. And I came across two theories that were um, that seemed of value. The first one was positive psychology. And so positive psychology is the scientific study of authentic happiness or well-being. And what it is, is back in, back in the 2000s timeframe, uh, Dr. Martin Seligman began this, this movement, this new branch of psychology. And what you realize is, you know, after World War II, psychology went through an interesting journey. All of the funding that was coming out for research projects that were psychology-based 
uh, were, were almost unilaterally were based on fixing diseases, understanding disorders, really looking at the negative sides and how can we help people come back to the average, right? And so psychology as a field got a little bit warped because it was, it was very focused on that, on that negative, almost a pathology, right? The studying of, of the failures. And so what positive psychology does is it opens the other side to that equation. It's looking at, you know, if, if you're a genius, why? Why are you a genius? If you're, you know, really talented in this area, why? What makes that happen? What, what makes excellence, right? And it kind of boils down to what makes life worth living, right? So psychology in previous times would bring us up to the average positive psychology now is trying to get us to really excel. And so one of the common questions that comes up is, well, how do you measure happiness? Because immediately that seems like a, like a, almost a silly goal, right? You can't measure happiness. Well, it turns out we can. So they developed a model called the PERMA model, P-E-R-M-A. It's an acronym. And what it is, is um, your happiness is a lot like the weather. So if I say to you, you know, how's the weather? You might say good, you might say bad, right? And the thing is, I would know what you mean, but the reality is we can't measure weather, right? There is no, there's no way of doing that. But we can measure lots of elements that make up weather. So we can measure wind speed and precipitation and temperature and all those kinds of things. And collectively, we look at those and say, that's what the weather is. So when we say it's good, well, we know, right? It's sunny, it's, um, you know, nice and warm out, those kind of things. So happiness turns out to be the same kind of a thing. It's a construct where we have five basic elements of it. And that's the PERMA model. PERMA stands for uh, positive emotion. So it's kind of self-explanatory. It's the positive emotions that we experience in our lives, um, subject, subjective to the individual. Um, e is engagement. So engagement is um, like really how intent you are on whatever the activity is. So have you ever been like working on a project that you were really into and you looked up and you're like, oh my God, you know, three hours have gone by and you thought it was 15 minutes, right? That's a, that's a psychological phenomenon we call flow. And so if you're, if you have a lot of periods of flow, you would say you're very high in your engagement. Right? So that's kind of how to understand it. Then you have the R factor. R is for relationships, for healthy relationships. This one turns out to be a really important one. Um, studies have shown that for predicting our longevity, this is actually the most reliable indicator. People think, you know, weight and uh, blood pressure, cholesterol, all of these kinds of factors, even smoking, right, is a, is a good predictor. Um, but it turns out, our relationships with others is the most predictive of our longevity. It's it's that critical to our to our um, to our well-being. The M then stands for meaning, and so that is taking like uh, an activity that I do and seeing it as having more meaning. So a lot of times we'll translate that into like a religious kind of an experience, as you're tying it to a higher meaning. Um, but it doesn't have to mean that. It can be anything. It could be like, you know, you're doing volunteer work. So there's a, there's a higher meaning there to it. 
or you know you're engaged in a mission that you really believe in that's helping others there's there's meaning to it that you as the individual are are attributing and then the last factor is accomplishment and accomplishment is really kind of what it says it's it's feeling that sense of accomplishment in what you're doing it adds to your reputation to your personal knowledge to your expertise all of those kinds of things so the the basic idea behind my research was simple. I wanted to take this PERMA model and I wanted to test it and see if I have a pool of people that are using a knowledge management system, is there any correlation between their PERMA scores and what they exhibit uh, as behaviors in the knowledge management system? So I want to ask you, you started saying what makes excellence and that that's a big part of positive psychology. And then we started talking about the PERMA score and happiness. Do you see a relationship between the happiness and the excellence? Is that a straight line? Is that a wiggly line? Because um, I, I would think that that would relate to how this then applies to the knowledge management space and getting some of the outcomes that you want to see. So absolutely. When we look at some of those scores in the PERMA model specifically, right, they, they directly align to, um, you know, working towards that excellence, especially like the accomplishment, the meaning, the positive emotions. And one of the really interesting things about this too, you know how you can have, you can enter into, we call it the negative spiral. So something bad happens that makes you feel bad and you lose concentration, that makes you do something else bad and you, you run into that negative spiral. Things just keep getting worse. Well, it turns out the positive side is absolutely true too. So if, I, if I'm working on something and it's very challenging, but I'm very into it, then my engagement level is going to go up because I might enter that flow state and really get into the subject and I work at it hard. By working at it hard, but it not even feeling like work because I'm so into it, I end up coming to a positive accomplishment, which now adds to my accomplishment score. When I do that, it makes me feel good. So it adds to my um, my positive emotion, right? And, and now I start to share this out like I'm sharing with you. So I start to build those relationships. It very rapidly does this very positive spiral up. And then that leads to excellence. That's great. Well, from a research angle, I want to ask you, what did you expect to find first? And then what did you actually find when you started doing the research from a knowledge management perspective? So it's a great question. And it was one of those where the findings surprised me. So I fully expected that the PERMA score as a whole, because when you put it all together, there's a there's an overall score. I figured there would be a correlation there just because it kind of made logical sense to me. Then when we break it down and look at each individual score, I expected the relationship score to have a high correlation. And my thought process was this, every knowledge management project that I'd ever worked on, we would like market it to the users saying things like, um, you know, this is gonna help out your peers. Uh, this helps the organization as a whole. Um, it's all about, you know, sharing the knowledge across. Everything was very community-based and uh, almost from an altruistic kind of perspective. And so to me, when I looked at it, I'm like, that directly aligns with that relationship score. So I was confident that it, that it would, um, that there would be a, a strong correlation there. And then I figured we might find out some things from the other ones, but I wasn't too sure about those, right? 
So the study that I did, we had 1,075 people participate, which was a very nice size sample. Um, they all belonged to a single software company that had a global presence. Our, our participants were in 60 different countries, so we had a good um, uh, demographic across the, the globe, right? So we could um, see some of the generability here. And uh, we, we gave them the Burma um, survey, which you can find at AuthenticHappiness.org. And we also asked a couple questions about their participation in the knowledge management uh, system that this organization had. And all was anonymous, so folks could you know, answer any way they wanted. And when we did the analysis on it, we did multiple regression testing on it. And what we found was really interesting. The overall PERMA score did highly correlate with the positive behaviors that were exhibited in the knowledge management system. Um, but what was, what was really interesting, relationship, not at all. There's absolutely no correlation to their behaviors in the knowledge management system. In fact, the only individual score that did was accomplishment. So accomplishment is all, that's out of all of the factors that would be like the least altruistic because it's about me. It's what's in it for me. Am I um, benefiting directly? Am I gaining reputation? Am I, you know, known as the person that's the expert? And that one correlated. And so what that said to me was, we're kind of approaching this from a wrong perspective. Every time that I'd been trying to drive it and say, you know, look at the community, you're going to benefit the others around you. I was actually giving a message that somewhere deep in the mind is telling the person, whoa, I don't want to do this. This is actually contrary to, to what I need, right? Yeah, I feel like so many organizations get focused on how do we avoid knowledge hoarding and things like mm -hmm. that. And it's usually a question of, well, you've got to figure out how those people's incentives are encouraging them to do that and how you can maybe shift some of those incentives so that it's more beneficial for them to share than to hoard. And I, I think that ties into what you're saying here, where um, it, it's really about that that personal what's in it for me and, and how does this going to help me advance in my career, find new opportunities, um, whatever it is that that's going to drive that accomplishment score. So then looking at that, um, I, I wanted to dive deeper in. So there was a second psychological theory that I looked at. This was developed by Denise Rousseau, um, Carnegie Mellon University, and it's called uh, psychological contracts. This theory, the more that I learn about it, and I'm still learning every day, the more fascinating it becomes because there's so many things that for me, it has given me real clarity into that previously were a mystery. And that's why I'm so excited by it. And everyone that I've shared this with, they, they get it and see it too. So psychological contracts is a really interesting construct. It is, it is an unspoken unilateral agreement between an individual and an organization. So, for example, myself and my employer, it is the clauses, if you will, I'm using air quotes here, clauses that are in a psychological contract are wholly determined by the individual. In fact, this contract is never talked to 
to the organization. The organization has no awareness of it whatsoever. But these are fundamental things that are often tied to my core values and my beliefs. Very, very subjective thing here. So some examples of that would be like, I personally believe that if I put in a hard day's work, I should get a hard day's pay, right? Um, I believe things like my manager should look out for my best interests as long as they're not in conflict with the organizations and, and others, those kinds of things. These are things that are very fundamental in how we as individuals look at our relationships with our employers and other organizations, right, that we, that we interact with. And there's a, there's a really interesting aspect to it. So when, when violations of these terms happen, because these terms were never spoken out loud, and because they're tied very tightly, typically, to my core beliefs, there's no real way for me to deal with them. So if you think about a traditional contract or let's say your company's policies, when there's a violation in those, there's usually a way to, um, to address those, those failures, right? There's a way for me to file a grievance or, you know, go up the chain and, and get it resolved. But with these in the psychological contract, there's not. And because I didn't have a conversation about it up front, it's never been said. It's very unlikely that I, as an individual, when these violations happen, are going to come forward and talk about it. So if you've ever seen a situation where you had a, you know, a really good employee, had a good reputation, you know, you've known them for a long time, everything was, was really good, they were very productive, and suddenly out of the blue, they started going down a road where they're getting like more and more disconnected, and you saw that they were interacting with their manager uh, in a less and less productive way, but no one, including the manager sometimes, understood the why. And then suddenly the person just leaves the organization and leaves. And there's this feeling of why, what happened? Almost always, those are psychological contract violations. And it's such a, it's such a sad thing to happen because they're usually on things, the violations where the violator isn't even aware that it happened. So what do you see around the psychological contracts in terms of the connection to knowledge management and change adoption? Where do you feel like organizations maybe go wrong with that or don't realize that or could could use knowledge of that to, to do a better job? So great question. And I, I think it's fun because it actually helps to explain what my findings were in my dissertation, that whole part about, um, you know, correlating to the accomplishment uh, variable. So there's been specific research done on psychological contracts for knowledge, for knowledge workers. And it turns out the, the typical knowledge worker has clauses in their psychological contract that are common for, for knowledge workers. And they typically look something like this. Uh, I am valuable to my organization because of the unique knowledge that I bring. And then there's other flavors of it, but that's kind of the heart of it. So when we in turn, as a knowledge management practitioner, we go to those knowledge workers and we're saying those things like, hey, you know, your knowledge on this process is really valuable. You're the only one that knows it. We need you to codify it so that others will 
will benefit from that knowledge, we're violating their psychological contract. So we need to understand in the context of where that worker is, the, the culture that that organization has in place, what kind of thought process the individual has. And then we want to apply the behaviors and the transitions that we're looking for that fit in with where they're at now and where we want them to be. And all too common right now is we, we step all over those contracts and aren't even aware that they existed. So I guess my next natural question is, have you been able to put any of this into practice in your day-to-day -day work? And, and do you have more practical recommendations for what organizations should do with all of this body of research that you've been working on? I kind of transitioned from straight up knowledge management into uh, change management, which I see as they, they go hand in hand. For me, it was a very natural progression. And specifically in change management, we at, at Microsoft, we use the, the ProSci methodology. And one of the things that it really stresses is it's, it's all about the individual, right? We will get organizational changes by getting individual changes. And the way that you get individual changes is about hitting the what's in it for me. We have to drive that message of what is in it for me. So in the knowledge management efforts that I've been in, we approached that like we thought we were going after the what's in it for me. But because we weren't deliberately looking at that psychological contract and really understanding where the individual is, we weren't hitting the core what's in it for me. And that's what we need to do to change. So it's a, it's a, it's a hard one to give a, uh, a practical guidance on because it really depends on where your organization is and where the individual is. The, the easiest answer I can give is to deliberately bring that into your consideration as you're going through a, a change management cycle, for example. So when, um, when my team... Uh, at Microsoft, what we do, we, 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 we create tools that we use internally and tools and processes. And so as we do changes to those, um, we handle the change management to our field users. And what we do is we really look at where are they? What are they experiencing for this, right? Where they are now versus where they need to go. And then bring in that concept of the psychological contract on, you know, how, how are they going to receive this message and how can we help them get to where they need to be? So one of the common things that we're doing now is, um, you know, looking at uh, messaging, how does this help your career progression, right? And bringing it from that perspective. And one of the things that I've told people over and over is I, I when I'm specifically, when I'm in the knowledge management frame, to my regular users, I never even mention knowledge management because I don't even want them to think about it. What I want them to do is do the behaviors, right? And so I connect into what is your career development? What's going to make you more valuable? What's going to make you um, have more longevity, meet your career goals, all of those kinds of things. And then take the things that we're trying to do from a knowledge management perspective and tie those directly to them so that they just know this is what you need to do. No theory behind it, no academics, just here's what you need to do. 
No, I think that's so smart. I think meeting your end users, your internal customers, where they are, understanding their motivations and reverse engineering what you want them to do and explaining to them how that's going to support their goals makes so much sense. A couple other things that I was thinking about while you were talking is that I think that a lot of KM programs tend to want to send out universal messaging and, and doing this right really involves micro-targeting different groups, different functions, different age groups, you know, tenure levels, all sorts of different factors have different motivations and feel accomplishment through different pieces and, and you've got to think about that piece you know um, that is that is so correct um and i so that's one of the things that i tell my team a lot and one of the one of the pushbacks i get leland that that's really hard to do and i hear you it can be right but i have a i have a tip for that too here's what i do i write that universal message and I actually put it on paper, right? So that I can see it. And I write it and I think it through. What am I really trying to vision? How does this come into play, right? Who are those different players? And then what I do is I take that core message when I'm satisfied with it. And then I make a copy. And then I say, for this key role, how does this message change? And usually it's just a few sentences that I have to change to really tweak it. And then I go to the next role that I really need to hit and I make a copy and I change those sentences. So it makes it a much easier um, task to do. It's not this, it's not like you have to write a book for every single role that you're impacting. It's usually all I need to do is highlight their part of the story, their part of the journey. That's what makes it come home. Absolutely. And the other piece that I was thinking about is we see over and over in the research how powerful success stories are, especially if they're targeted at the right people. And so I feel like that could tie into this PERMA score and the sense of accomplishment and all the different things that you're talking about. If you can hit the right example, the right anecdote to show people how this can help them in their career or with a particular project they're working on, can make their work easier, more efficient, more productive, and they, that story really resonates with them, that, that's part of why that's so powerful is some of the psychology that you're talking about. Yep, you're absolutely right. And then you trigger that positive spiral, right? And then that that's actually an addictive thing too to others. Because as soon as you get someone's energy going, when they're interacting with others, others pick up on that energy and they want to run with it too. It's a very, very self-building kind of a thing once you get it started. Well, I think that's a perfect place to leave it with some positive energy, positive spiral. Once again, this is Lauren Trees with Leland HomeQuest. And thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for being with us today, Leland. Thank you, Lauren. I, was, I had a lot of fun. And please visit APQC.org if you want to learn more about all things knowledge management.